to you, uh, our speaker this morning, uh, a gentleman who is likely familiar to most of you here this morning. Austin Royal is the campus minister, the Reform University Fellowship, finally known as RUF, campus minister, uh, right down the street at Austin P. State University. If you don't know about RUF, let me just explain uh, real quickly uh, what that is. Uh, we have, as you've made, those of you who've been around here, several different denominational agencies in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, the denomination of which we are a part. One is Mission to the World. That's the agency that uh, when we go to Cherokee in the, the Smoky Mountains, that's the agency that, that's equipping and getting us out there and squared away as we're making trips like that. Also, of course, so many different missionaries across the globe beyond just there in the Smokies. Mission to North America would be another one. Uh, when we've been talking about disaster relief ministries and sending down uh, finances and material uh, things down to assist with what's happened down in the Gulf states and down in Florida here in uh, recent weeks with these hurricanes that have ripped through and caused so much devastation. Mission to North America is who we turn to and, and helps organize and systematize so much of those good efforts. Reform University Fellowship is the campus ministry, the college ministry uh, here on the, in the campuses, not just in North America, but actually uh, globally in certain universities or in uh, other countries as, as well. It is certainly distinct. Uh, among many other good ministries out there on campuses around the world, particularly around this country. Uh, its uh, mission statement, unless it's changed, right, is a, a reaching students for, for Christ and equipping them to serve. That's right, I was going out on a limb there. Um, and, and part of its uniqueness is its campus ministers are all seminary trained, ordained and licensed ministers of the gospel serving there on college campuses under the care and authority and oversight of local presbyteries. And that's where Austin is. He is in the process of being ordained, and he is certainly under the care of the Nashville Presbytery, the group of churches that uh, this little church uh, here in Clarksville is, is a part of. So it's a bit of background there. Austin has been here for 15 months or so, moving into year number two. Uh, here at, uh, at Austin P, and we're so glad uh, to have that ministry here, so glad to have this family here and you here this morning. So come on up. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I work with RUF. I'm thankful this church appreciates RUF and what we're doing on campus. Thank you for supporting us and praying for us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, the theme this morning um, and the theme of the series that we're in is outreach. And this morning we're kind of talking about the bad news uh, about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and how he moves towards sinners, um, how he moves towards a broken world and redeems it. And the reality is for there to be good news, uh, there's got to be a little bad news. And it speaks into the bad news. Uh, the gospel busts into the bad news um, and gives us hope. And so, you know, this morning we've already read Romans 1, which is a pretty bleak, uh, not very exciting passage to read. Um, and now I'm about to read Genesis 3, which uh, is going to give some of the background of why things are the way they are. But it also, it, it doesn't seem that encouraging. Uh, it's not that fun to read about Genesis 3. Um, but here's the thing. Y'all are familiar with this story. We're familiar with this person named Eve eating a fruit uh, because a snake tricked her um, to do it. Um, 
But don't let that familiarity keep you from hearing what the text says. Because there's a lot of bad things in the text. Um, it condemns us. It shows us the places where we uh, fail to fall after God, um, how we shift the blame on some of the things where we're wrong. Uh, but there's also slight glimmers of hope. Um, and although they are slight, they are very real. And it shows you the heart of God. Because the reality is, Genesis 3 tells us sin entered the world and everything changed. Everything went from this beautiful bliss, glory, uh, to brokenness, dysfunctional relationships. Um, everything changed, everything fell, but God. God stayed the same. He was the same God, and he still is the same God. Uh, and I want us to pay attention to that. And with that in mind, I'm going to read Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took it of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said to you, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of, or have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and all, 
and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Um, Lord, these words are heavy. Uh, there's a lot, and it's hard to understand. And we cannot talk about everything that's in this passage today. But I pray that you would show us how we fit into this story. And I, show that you, I pray that you would show us the ways in which the outside world fits into this story and how you move towards us in the midst of it. Please make yourself beautiful this morning. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, there's a woman named Vicki Vaness. Uh, she's 30 years old. She's a personal trainer. She's a health nut. Uh, she's super fit. And uh, about 18 months ago, she went to the doctor complaining about um, having troubles. Uh, she, she'd been coughing a lot. Um, she was short of breath some. And she went to the doctor just to get it checked out. And the doctor basically told her, like, it may be asthma, um, it's probably not a big deal, uh, just change a couple of things and, and you should be okay. Um, well, 18 months have passed and it kind of, it was off and on, coughing, shortness of breath, probably asthma, not a big deal. Um, well, Vicki just went back to the doctor a couple weeks ago and she has stage 4 lung cancer. Um, and she's had cancer growing in her lungs for the last 18 months. And it's only showed itself in little things. Uh, coughing, shortness of breath, and only on occasion. And so this doctor, who she'd gone to, misdiagnosed her. And the reason was, is because she looked healthy. She looked normal. Uh, she posted a picture of herself the day before uh, she was diagnosed with four, stage 4 lung cancer. And it's just what you would imagine. A fit woman, uh, healthy. And she said this, when you have cancer, you won't necessarily look ill on the outside. The symptoms might be much more subtle and only show themselves occasionally. Uh, a very scary message for us. Uh, and yet one in which Genesis 3 kind of lends itself towards who we are and why we are the way we are. Um, it's like a diagnosis for humanity. We uh, aren't perfect and we're willing to admit we're not perfect, uh, but it's hard for us to admit that we might have cancer living inside us. Uh, we, we're much more willing to say, uh, maybe this is asthma. Like, sin, sin is like asthma. Uh, it's not a big deal as long as you change some of your behavior, um, as long as you take a few puffs of Jesus or read your Bible a little bit, like, you're going to be okay. Um, but, you know, the reality is asthma, it, it, it really is, it, it can be um, a pretty significant health issue. And so I think, if we're honest with ourselves, sin's kind of like bad breath. Like, it's, it's like bad breath. If we brush our teeth in the morning, Take a few pieces of gum, tic-tac with us, like we're going to be okay. And if we don't brush our teeth, we'll forget and we'll just pull back. Uh, we won't get too close to people. We won't let them close. Um, and what Genesis 3 is trying to say is 
is we have cancer growing inside us. Um, and something has to change. We need help. We need a doctor to come in and change our hearts. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How does God move towards us in the midst of having uh, sin in our hearts? Um, and what does it look like for him to love us there? What does it look like for hearts, our hearts to trust him, to love him? Uh, so three points today. Hearts that won't trust. Hearts that are afraid and run and hide. And then the heart of God. Um, so first, hearts that won't trust. Uh, if you look at the beginning of our chapter uh, in Genesis 3, um, let me lay out the context for you. It's in the garden, Adam and Eve. It's perfect paradise. Perfect people, perfect place. Um, everything is great. Think of the best day you've ever had and multiply that by a thousand and it was ten times better than that. Um, so the thing about that is the circumstances for Adam and Eve to listen and obey God were better than they've ever been before. They had no reason to distrust God. Um, but as we see in verse 3, there's a serpent in the garden. And he says this, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? Now think about this. There's multiple red flags. One is there's a talking snake. Um, that's weird. Um, but the other, is, he says, he, he missed... He misuses God's word. He skews them. He says, did God say you can't eat from anything? Um, think about it. What, what's the servant doing? Who's he attacking? Who's he going after? Yes, Eve's right in front of him, but he's going after the character of God. It is an all-out assault on the character of God, um, causing Eve to question whether or not she can actually trust God. Do you see all these trees in the garden? how many, look how beautiful this place is. You're trying to tell me the God that walks with you in the garden, he's saying you can't eat from any of them? What's he doing? God's stingy. God's not good. God doesn't want to give you good things. You can't trust him. You can't trust his word. Why do you listen to him? It's an assault on God's character. Questioning the goodness of God, questioning the word of God, questioning if you can actually trust him. The reality is, relationships are built on trust. And trust is deeply connected to love. Uh, because if you love someone, um, you will be a trustworthy person. The serpent is going after that. He's assaulting God. Um, and if you look at verse 4, uh, he, he furthers it. Uh, Eve responds to him saying, no, like he said, we can only eat from one. Um, uh, but then he says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, you will, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He furthers this idea that God is not good. Furthers this idea that God is withholding. Furthers this idea um, that God can't be trusted. It's like, God's insecure. He doesn't want you to be like him. Uh, he doesn't want you to have the wisdom he has. Um, I hope you can see the, the landslide going on in Eve's mind right now as she's experienced this loving, good God for however long, and all of a sudden, this serpent is throwing these little nothings at her, saying, no, you can't really trust God. And she begins to think, I've been fooled. Not by the serpent. I've been fooled by God. That's where she goes. Um, there's these things uh, that you can buy. 
if you want. Uh, they're called color glasses. Um, and they're used as these therapeutic glasses that are kind of supposed to change your mood, change your emotions. So you put on red glasses, um, and it calms you down. You, you put on blue glasses, and it doesn't make you feel as anxious. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but people use them and say they have this cognitive, emotional, psychological change when they put these glasses on. And that's what the serpent has done. He's offered her these colored glasses and said, see your world through these. Immediately, she's suspicious of God. Um, and it's not just that. She, she begins to see the world through the theology of the serpent. Uh, she begins to see her world with these colored glasses that block out any possibility that God could be good or trustworthy. Um, the devil, he's torn down this image of who God is and rendered it useless, the idea that God is good, that he's trustworthy, that his word is good. Um, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we think about this, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. We're in a similar boat. If you think about your days, when things go bad, um, when things are hard, who gets blamed first? Who do you question first? Who do you point the finger at and say, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? Um, it raises the, like, I think the question in our own hearts where we realize we question God's goodness. We do it all the time. Um, we in this room, not just people outside this room, we question if God is good. We question if his word is worth following. Uh, we question if we can actually trust him. That's what we see Eve doing in a perfect garden, in a perfect place. Don't you think we might do the same thing in a not-so-perfect world? Um, we take this idea that the serpent has been feeding humanity for thousands and thousands of years, and we run with it. And we run with it a thousand different directions. Um, to where we can twist any and everything to lead us to believe God's not good. Um, God's after me. God enjoys mashing his thumb on me. Uh, and we forget that maybe there's something else in the world, um, something that God actually hates, something that God cares deeply about, something God cares deeply about redeeming, um, and we just ignore that. And we, we pinpoint God and we say, it's your fault. Um, and it doesn't stop there. I'm going to move on to the second point with uh, hearts that, that hide, hearts that turn and run from God. Um, the servant attacks the character of God, and he keeps going. Um, and obviously what happens after that is Eve takes the fruit, she takes the bait, and sin enters the world. Um, and what immediately happens? Look at verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Uh, sin causes us to hide. It causes us to want to cover up. Uh, it causes us to push people away. Uh, it, it, further, it goes further. They, they eventually run from the presence of God. Um, they're covering themselves. They're hiding themselves. Uh, as we know from the dialogue between them and God that we see just a few verses later, they begin this blame-shifting thing where no one will take credit for what's happened. Uh, no one wants to take the blame. Um, 
I mean, imagine this for a second. You can imagine this blissful, perfect place, and then moments later, bliss to brokenness. Perfect union and relationship to loneliness and separation. Total freedom to be yourself, to be open and vulnerable to covering, hiding, putting up walls, keeping everyone at arm's length. One moment there's joy and peace, the next it's fear and anxiety. You could go on and on and on where we see the brokenness, the dysfunctionality that we experience every day entering the world right here. Um, Adam and Eve felt the weight of their sin in a way that I don't know if we can imagine. Like We feel it every day. I don't know if we can imagine what it would have been like to not know it and then to know it for the first time and how that would undo you. It would break you. Um, and that's what we see. Running, hiding, covering. Um, hiding from people and hiding from God. And I think we understand this. I'm going to illustrate it anyways, though. Uh, there's this awesome YouTube video. It's not the funniest YouTube video out there. Um, but it's this father videotaping his two boys, probably four and two. Um, and it starts with these boys in a bathtub, I guess a stand-up shower, and they're just covered in paint. Paint all over their face, all over their bodies. Uh, all you can see is the white around their eyes. Um, and the dad just starts asking them questions, like, what, who, why, how? How did this happen? Whose idea was this? Uh, do you think this was a good idea? Should you get in trouble for this? Um, and it's pretty funny because the, the kids, uh, as you might expect, just, I mean, at, at one point, one kid just starts pointing everywhere, like, is this your fault? And he's just like, uh, no, it was this guy over here. You know, it's like, they're like saying, should you get punished? And they're like, yes. And, you know, it's like they're, <clears throat> you see this blame shifting happening. You see them trying to hide. You see them wanting to cover themselves. Um, and it's very obvious who's, who's at fault, what's happened. Um, both kids have destroyed, apparently, their basement. It doesn't show you that. But, um, but I think we can relate to this not just by looking at YouTube videos, but like looking at our own lives, um, looking at our own marriages, our own relationships. We do this with people. Uh, we blame shift. Um, we won't acknowledge that we are wrong we always find a way out of it. Um, or we remove ourselves and say, no, like, uh, we won't be open with people. Uh, we won't acknowledge our sin. We won't acknowledge our brokenness. We won't acknowledge the way that we failed. Um, and it, that creates a furthering of the dysfunctional way in which relationships work. It pushes us farther and farther away from people. And... I think as Christians, if we want to reflect God in the world, it, it looks like taking some ownership. Uh, actually taking ownership of the places where we don't model what it looks to live uh, a life that reflects Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, but part of this passage is saying the people in these four walls really aren't that much different than the people outside of these four walls. We really aren't. Our relationships look very similar. Our responses to people look very similar. Um, we hide and cover just as much. Uh, and I think 
what they can acknowledge is that sin twists things. Um, it complicates things in ways that too often we think is just like bad breath. It's just like asthma. Um, we won't acknowledge that it is killing us and it's killing the relationships that we're in. Um, so I think one of the things just with the theme, the heart of evangelism touches down when you realize you're really not that much different, which means you can actually relate to people in ways that they don't think you can. People look at Christians and think Christians are good people who have their lives together. And if we put up that facade, no one is going to come to know Jesus. Because they're going to think, you're just like me except for you think you're good. But I know you're not. People see through those things. What if we actually acknowledge that we were broken? Um, that we didn't have our lives together? That we struggled in the similar and same ways that other people do? Don't you think Jesus might look a little more beautiful to them? Might make a little more sense? Uh, I think that's part of what the gospel calls us to is knowing that we have an identity that's in Christ, which means our sins, shortcoming, failures, it's not who makes up your person. It's not your identity, which means you can acknowledge them, be truthful about them, um, and say, I'm in Christ. Uh, I am broken and messed up, and I have a Savior who saved me from all these things. It goes back to the idea that uh, we've been talking about, we're beggars leading other beggars to bread. Um, we have to acknowledge that we're beggars first. And if we don't acknowledge that we're beggars, we're, we're acknowledging or we're saying, I don't really need Jesus. And if you don't think you need Jesus, you don't have much to say about Jesus. Um, I think, <laughs> this is just a thought that came. Too often, the outside world thinks we're aristocrats offering crumbs, saying, hey, come, come be like me, but you're really not going to make it. You're really not good enough. Your life's not together. Um, and that's not the gospel. Uh, the gospel is in seed form in this passage, um, which leads me to the third point of the heart of God. We actually see the heart of God in this um, very slightly because the reality is, is what we see, okay, there's, there's curses on the serpent, there's curses on the ground, um, there's punishment that uh, men, and or men and women feel, um, we see the ways in which uh, God is a holy God, a loving God, and yet his justice comes out. Adam and Eve experienced God in a new way in this passage, where at first they knew him as a kind, loving, compassionate, and now they get to see his justice, his holiness, in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and it's hard. I think people look at the Old Testament and they think God is bipolar. I'm not that interested in him. Because on the one hand, he looks like a God who loves people. And on the other hand, he has these knee-jerk reactions of doing ridiculous stuff uh, where he's just spewing out anger and wrath on people. Um, and in some sense, if you look at this passage, you might think, oh, like, this is kind of what the Bible says, or that's kind of what this story is saying. And I think that's wrong. Um, because the reality is we have to acknowledge there are consequences for our sin. There's consequences for doing wrong. The little kids in that YouTube video know that. They're two and four, and they know there's consequences for when they do wrong. Um, and at the same time, it is very evident in that video, their father loves them. He cares a lot about them. Um, 
he literally laughs himself through the video. It's kind of funny. Um, but think about this. We have to show people a God who loves them in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their sin. And that's what we see. Uh, look at uh, verses uh, 9, after they've hidden themselves from the Lord. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Those are sweet words. Where are you? Uh, those are words coming from a God who cares about his people and wants to know them. Uh, a God who doesn't have a knee-jerk reaction, but who comes asking where, what, who, why. Um, he's actually caring for his people. I think if you think about this situation, um, put yourself in the middle of it. Because I'm, I'm one of three boys, and I'm the youngest. The others are four and six years older than me. Uh, I got picked on a lot. Um, but I also have multiple guy cousins that are older than me, and we used to go to the beach together. And at the beach, you build sandcastles. You build massive sandcastles when you're a little kid. Um, and it's a lot of fun. You put your heart and soul into it. Um, you spend hours on it. And you admire your creation. When you have older brothers, they don't think it's as cool as you think it is. And so they come in and crush it. Um, and I... You know, what happens? Uh, tempers flare. Uh, people get angry. People get frustrated. And it's shown very easily. Um, you know, this happens not just with sandcastle. It happens with Legos. It happens with building blocks. It happens all the time in our house. Um, and I think our response shows a heart where it's like, in the moments of adversity, when things are tense, you see what's in your heart. Um, your heart is revealed. You can't cover it up. And what we see God doing is moving towards his people with care. Uh, yes, he says there was punishment for your sin, um, but he moves towards them. They don't move towards him. They run away, and he pursues. Uh, and I think if you could think back to moments in your life, in your childhood, relationships with your parents, um, with friends, there are moments in those relationships when things were hard, when things were tense, and you distinctly remember the way they responded. You remember it, whether it was good or bad. You have moments that stick out in certain relationships where you pinpoint, that's how they really feel about me. That's what they really think about me. Um, and they've stuck with you. And this needs to stick with us. A God who moves towards people who've just crushed, who've just kicked over his creation, who've just messed it up, he could have easily wiped the canvas clean. He could have easily blotted Adam and Eve out of history forever, and he didn't. He left them there. Because um, in it, we see a God who loves and cares for us. Um, the text goes on to say uh, that he clothes them as they move out of the garden. Um, so not only does he move towards them, he provides for them, even in the garden, even right after they've fallen into sin. Uh, and this is where if we don't see God clearly, we're not going to share him with other people. Uh, if we don't understand the ways God loves us, uh, we're not going to try and share that love with other people. Uh, and Genesis 3 paints a picture where, yes, it is bleak and seems hopeless, 
And at the same time, there's so much hope in it because we see the heart of God, heart moving towards, heart providing, even in the midst of their sin. Um, and the thing is, right after they've fallen into sin, God does two things. He wants to know them, move towards them, and he wants to crush the serpent's head. Knowing, caring for his people, crushing the serpent's head. Not crushing them, crushing the serpent's head. Um, and it's in this, as you know, the, uh, if you know this passage in verse 15, um, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, people would say that is the gospel in seed form. That, that is the promise that Jesus will come one day. Um, the offspring of the woman coming to crush the, sa- the serpent's head and yet the offspring being bruised. Uh, that's the promise of the gospel. Jesus moving towards us, defeating death, defeating sin um, at the cost of himself. And that's what we share with people. We share a gospel where God bends over backwards to meet us where we are, to love us where we are, even in our rebellion and sin, um, and to transform the world through us as we go out into the world and share that with other people. Um, But I also want to be clear, I think when we think about sharing the gospel with people, I think we think about sharing Jesus down the cross for your sin and he forgives you. Um, And the reality is, a lot of us think sin is just bad breath or asthma, which means sin doesn't always, like, they don't always understand it. Um, But people do understand broken relationships. They understand dysfunctional relationships. They understand marriages that are shattered. Um, They understand loneliness. They understand shame. They understand guilt. They understand hiding, putting up walls. Those are places that Jesus touches down to, that he moves towards us. Those are inroads where as we share our own hearts, as we share our own struggles with people, they actually might start listening. They actually might start seeing the ways Jesus is relevant to their story and their life. Um, I think we have a beautiful opportunity to, to recognize if we are in Christ, we're new creations. Our identity is in Jesus. It's not our sin. It's not our, like, our failures, which means we can actually be honest there. Um, and I think that will go a long way as we think about sharing the good news of Jesus with people. Um, but part of it is knowing who God is and the ways he moves towards us and loves us. And I'll close with this. My, uh, my dad is a judge. Um, he's a federal judge. Uh, he just retired. And they, uh, they had three or four people that talked about them or talked about him. And one of the women, one of the ladies that talked to him was a defense attorney. And so she was constantly bringing people into his courtroom that were most likely guilty um, all the evidence was stacked against them, and her job was to defend them, um, to ask my dad to give them uh, you know, a lesser sentence or something like that. Um, but it was interesting because she was by far the best speaker of the four that got up, and she by far knew my dad the best. She saw him in a way that no one else saw him. Um, and so it was really cool to just be like, man, like this, this woman understands my dad uh, because she's worked closely alongside him. And I, I just acknowledged that after. I said, Dad, it was cool. It was cool to see that this woman kind of knew you and understands you. Um, 
And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Austin, judges have a lot of power. Our decisions determine the fate of people standing in our courtroom. Their futures are in our hands. And most people believe judges are cruel. And I've always tried to err on the side of mercy in my courtroom. And people notice that. That's what he said. And it, it just it stood out to me because that's what we see in this passage. Uh, a God who has the right to blot people off the face of the universe, who just ruined his creation, and he moves towards them. And he doesn't just move towards them once. He keeps going back over and over again to the point where he sends his son into the world to live a life we couldn't, to die a death we couldn't, and to bring newness of life so that Genesis 3 is not our reality. We have the hope of the gospel. And Jesus doesn't just offer forgiveness of sin. He offers to cover you with his righteousness so that you don't feel the guilt and shame that you experience every day. Jesus speaks into that reality. Um, Jesus also comes after you into the dark places in your life where you try to hide, where you try to put up walls. He comes after you there. Uh, Jesus also takes the blame. That's what the cross is. Jesus taking your blame. The blame that you want to cast on other people, Jesus freely takes out on himself. So it frees you to actually acknowledge, you know what? I have messed up, but I have a Savior who's taking this blame for me. Uh, that's the beauty of the gospel. It is in this passage. Um, it is in the book of Romans. Uh, it's the story of the Bible. Uh, God moving towards us and loving us in the midst of our brokenness. And I pray as we go out into the world, we will share that with other people, knowing we're just like them, except for we're saved by grace. Uh, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, your word always surprises us. Even texts that seem so familiar, um, stories that we've heard throughout our lives, um, but we see you uh, in ways that we just don't expect. We see you move towards us. We see you show us grace. And I pray that we would be able to acknowledge that. Um, I pray that we would be able to think about the ways Jesus actually moves towards us in the midst of uh, the chaos around us, these dysfunctional relationships that we live in the midst of. Um, help us to see the ways that Jesus loves us there, redeems us there, and is at work there. And I pray that we would share that with other people. Um, Lord, thank you that uh, you call sinners to yourself. And I pray that we would believe that. Um, and we would live in light of who you are, knowing you are good, that your word is good, and that you can be trusted. We see that so clearly in Jesus. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>